Welcome back to our study on the kingdom of God, and this evening will be, hopefully, our uh, final evening looking at the parables of Christ regarding the kingdom. Uh, so we, this will be our fourth uh, session looking at the parables. We began in Matthew 13 uh, and looked at some parables there and then moved forward, and so this evening we'll begin in chapter 22. Now remember, as we're uh, looking at parables, these are uh, stories that are taken from real-life experiences, uh, things that people can understand, uh, things that they have experienced themselves. Uh, but these stories are used uh, to illustrate or to teach a spiritual point or a spiritual uh, truth uh, beyond simply uh, the events of the story. So, for instance, we're in chapter 22 this evening, and we'll be looking at this parable of the wedding feast. So Jesus is going to tell a parable about a wedding feast, but his point is not uh, about an earthly wedding. He has a greater point that he's making. So uh, as we look at these parables, we have to understand that's what's going on. So let's look at Matthew chapter 22, uh, verses 1 through 14, the parable of the wedding feast. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. The wedding was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called but few are chosen. So Jesus tells this parable, it says, uh, in, in answer to them. Uh, he had been teaching, if you remember, in chapter 21. Uh, he had relayed uh, a couple of parables to us there. Uh, the final one had been regarding the wicked vine dressers, uh, in which he had set, talked about the coming kingdom, uh, the stone that was pictured in Daniel 2 that would crush the other kingdoms, uh, and he said that it would uh, fall on them, the, the faithless religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes who did not believe, they did not have faith, uh, and so they, the kingdom would be taken away from them and given to others. And as we've seen throughout uh, Jesus' parables, 
the kingdom has come in an unexpected way, right? It didn't come uh, with great splendor and might uh, to take over the kingdoms of the world. It came in small ways, in the hearts of individuals. Uh, And next week, we'll turn to the Beatitudes and look at the unexpected sorts of individuals that the kingdom comes to. But here, Jesus said it's being taken away from these religious leaders who did not exercise faith and given to others. And so, uh, they're upset about this. They heard what he's saying, he knew, they knew he was speaking about them, and so they begin to plot uh, to lay hands on him and to do him harm. And so in answer to that, he tells this parable, uh, of course, in which we see uh, the masters sending his servants and being harmed, just like we had in the previous uh, parable of the wicked vine dressers, where the servants and, in fact, the son uh, were taken by the wicked servants and killed. So there's obvious similarities and parallels to the previous um, an parable here. We have an authority figure uh, who sends emissaries, uh, and they are rejected, they are abused, uh, and so judgment comes on those who are unfaithful. Uh, so the king, in this case, uh, is obviously God, and the son would be Christ. And so God is arranging a wedding feast for his son. Uh, of course, we know from other passages of Scripture that Christ is pictured for us as the bridegroom, and the church is his bride. And so God is arranging uh, this wedding feast of the Lamb, as we see in Revelation. He's arranging for the, the final uh, union of the church with Christ uh, in the consummated kingdom. And so he sends out his servants, the prophets, the apostles, uh, to uh, call and invite, to call those who have been invited uh, to come to the marriage. But the invited guests uh, are not willing to come. They treat it lightly. They make excuses why they can't come. Uh, And so we might think back to one of the previous parables that we looked at in Matthew 13 where Jesus uh, talked about the the sower and the seeds and the different types of soil. And one of those types of soil, you'll remember, uh, the seed began to grow, but then it was choked out by the cares of the world, the concerns of this world. And so we can see here uh, these sorts of things are getting in the way. They're making light of this invitation to come to the feast, and they're concerned about their farm, about their business, about the cares of this world. And then they abuse the the king's servants. They mistreat them, uh, abuse them, and kill them. And so judgment comes on them because of this. Again, so the unfaithful uh, religious leaders, the unfaithful Israelites who refuse to recognize Christ as the Messiah uh, will suffer judgment because of that. And so we see that in verse 7 where the king is furious and sends out his armies to destroy uh, those who refused his invitation. But he says that the wedding is prepared. Uh, It's ready. But they refuse to come. And so therefore he sends his servants out uh, to go and invite others to the wedding. Uh, And interestingly, uh, notice that they're not invited because of their merit. They're not invited because of how great they are. It says that they go out and they invite all that they found, both good and bad. And so... uh, Think back again to chapter 21 and the parables that we looked at there, and we saw that um, standing in the kingdom of heaven was not related to any merit 
of our own. It wasn't related to our wealth. It wasn't related to our social status. It wasn't related to our uh, good works in the world. It was purely based on the, the grace of God alone. And so we can see that this invitation to come into the wedding feast of the Lamb is purely based on the grace of God because it is extended both to the good and the bad. Uh, and they're all brought in to the wedding and the hall is filled with guests. And so, uh, obviously, it is the grace of God that does such a thing and not our own efforts, our own merit. And so, we might turn to Ephesians chapter 2, a passage that we're familiar with. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so it's by the the blood of Christ, the grace of God to us in Christ, that we are brought in uh, to experience the joy of the wedding feast. And of course it is a mixed uh, company. Right? It's, it's both good and bad, and we see in verse 11 even that there is one guest there uh, who does not have on the proper garments. So if we think about this, the, the king has prepared a wedding feast for his son. The invited guests don't come, so he sends his servants out, just go get people off the streets and bring them in. Well, they weren't expecting to go to a wedding. And they just got rounded up and brought into the wedding. So we would expect that the king would clothe them in appropriate attire. And so why does this man not have on the correct garments? Well, R.C. Sproul suggests that this is an instance uh, of someone rejecting, refusing the grace of God. He wants to be present with the church, but he actually in his heart is refusing the grace of God. He refuses to be clothed uh, in the righteousness of Christ. And so, uh, the king discerns this. Apparently, no one else did. And so, we've seen that before as well, that it is God who discerns the heart, God who uh, actually sees. And so, he calls him to account for it. And this one who has refused the grace of God, who does not believe, is cast out of the kingdom uh, into the outer darkness, where there will be both weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, this is both sorrow, the weeping, And gnashing of teeth is anger. If we think to uh, the stoning of Stephen, you might remember they were angry with Stephen. They gnashed their teeth at him and then stoned him to death. So the gnashing of teeth represents the the ongoing anger of the wicked towards God uh, as they suffer their punishment. And so John Calvin commenting on this says, The external profession of faith is not a sufficient proof that God will acknowledge as his people all who appear to have accepted his invitation. So here we have a man who appears to have accepted the invitation. He's come in to the hall where the wedding feast will be held, but inwardly he has refused the grace of God. And so uh, the outward profession of faith uh, is not a solid indicator that the person actually has faith, but that is uh, the heart that must be discerned by God. So, you know, this parable is teaching us uh, that, and it's illustrating the point that Jesus made at the end of the previous one, uh, that others would be called and invited in as those faithless 
Jewish religious leaders uh, would be cast out. And so those others who are invited in uh, are us, Gentiles, uh, but I would also argue are the, the, the poor and the, the, the ones that they would view as having been outside. Uh, remember that last week we talked about uh, the disciples being shocked that if a rich man can't enter the kingdom of heaven, who can? Because the rich man has all of the benefits of being able to devote his life to trying to keep these outward commandments that they had. The poor didn't have that luxury. Uh, but here we're seeing that the poor are invited in off the street to come into the kingdom. And we'll see more of that next week as we look specifically at uh, the Beatitudes. So let's fast forward over to chapter 25. Uh, Jesus doesn't really tell any more parables in chapters 23 and 24, uh, but as we get into 25, he tells two more parables, uh, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins and then uh, the parable of the talents. Now, in chapter 24, as Jesus is speaking to his disciples and teaching, he's teaching them about uh, his second coming, right? the coming of the Son of Man, and, and he's teaching them that it's going to come uh, in an unexpected way. And so as chapter 25 begins, he says, then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to. So he's referring back to something. Uh, he's referring back to the things that he said in chapter 24. And so if we look at chapter 24 and read verses 30 through 31, then the sign of the son of man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So he's talking about the final day when Christ returns, the elect are gathered, and the wicked are judged. And so that's what he's talking about when he says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened. So let's hear this parable of the wise and foolish virgins. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So, an interesting little uh, side note on this parable here as I was studying this this past week. Uh, I found online a sermon by Jonathan Edwards on this parable. And I began to read it, and as we've said in the past, the parables have primarily one main point, maybe two. Edwards was... Working his way through this parable, he had said at the top what the main point was, but he was working out all these different points of application. And I was reading and reading and reading 
And I started to get mentally exhausted, and I thought, I've got to be near the end of this thing. And so I started scrolling toward the bottom of the page, and it just kept scrolling, and it kept scrolling, and it kept scrolling. So out of curiosity, I copied the text of his sermon and pasted it into a Word document. Now, my sermons on Sunday morning are typically about 40, between 40 to 45 minutes long, and my manuscripts are generally about 5,000 words. His manuscript was 77,000 words. That's a long sermon. I, I hope to goodness for his congregation's sake that was more than one pulpit session uh, kind of stitched together into one document on the website I was reading. But uh, it was overwhelming, uh, the amount of information that he was sharing. But it was incredible. So it's on uh, the website called Monergism. If you want to go look that up and read it, it would take me about 10 hours to preach a sermon of that length. But uh, I read about half of it, and it was really, really good, but it was a lot of information to take in. But here we have Jesus telling uh, this parable of, uh, again, related to a wedding. And so we have to understand at the time in the first century uh, when a wedding was to take place, the bride and the, and the groom would prepare in their own homes, and then the groom would come to the bride's home uh, to take her as his wife and then return to his home with her. And so here we have these virgins that are attending the bride. They're waiting at her house for the bridegroom to come. Uh, and so that's the situation. They're waiting there so that they can illuminate his way to her home when he gets there. So in chapter 24, we had Christ teaching his disciples and warning them uh, of some things concerning the coming day of judgment, concerning his second return, warning them uh, in case he comes sooner than they might think that it's going to come unexpectedly, suddenly. Uh, But here we have a warning in this parable uh, in case it is delayed longer than we might think. And so we know from chapter 13 that the kingdom has come in one sense, uh, but it has not come in its fullness. It has not come in its majesty and its glory. And so that will happen when Christ returns. And so we're waiting for that. But what happens if it takes longer than we think it would? Well, obviously it has. The disciples thought that it would happen in their lifetime. Here we are 2,000 years later. So what are we to do? Well, Here we have this warning from Christ concerning that. The bridegroom, obviously, uh, is Christ in this parable. Uh, And so this is not a concept that would have been new to uh, the Jews. If we go back to Isaiah chapter 54, uh, we can read a verse like this, verse 5. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. And, And so... We see several passages like this in the Old Testament where God is pictured as a husband and Israel as his bride. And so here we are in the New Testament and we have Jesus pictured for us as the bridegroom. And and John the Baptist has already alluded to this in John chapter 3. They come and they tell John, hey, everybody's going over to this ministry of Jesus and leaving you. And so John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. 
So John saw himself as a friend of the bridegroom and Christ as the bridegroom. And the church, obviously, those who were believing the message being preached uh, was representative of the bride. And so that is what we have here. Now, the virgins in this parable uh, would represent for us the visible church, right? Professors of Christ, those who profess to have faith in Christ. In other words, they are church members. Uh, R.C. Sproul calls this uh, one of the most terrifying teachings of Christ uh, in this parable because we have here pictured for us uh, visible church members, some of whom are actually saved and some of whom apparently are not. And so that is uh, a dire warning uh, and a serious issue. And so one of the things that Edwards points out in his sermon on this parable that I thought was insightful was uh, these ten virgins, five of whom uh, are wise and five of whom are foolish. Obviously, the wise ones are true believers and the five foolish ones are false professors of faith. But he points out that they have a lot in common, that they agree on a great many things, right? They, They all went out to meet the bridegroom. They all were on good terms with the bride. They all took lamps with them. They all fell asleep. They all heard the cry that the bridegroom was coming and arose and trimmed their lamps. They had a lot in common with each other. Of course, there were differences as well. Some of them were wise. Some of them were foolish. The wise ones had oil. The foolish ones had no oil to replenish their lamps. Uh, At the time that the bridegroom came, the lamps of the wise ones were able to continue burning because they had that oil, whereas the foolish ones, their lamps went out, so they were not ready. Uh, The wise ones were calm about the return, the the coming of the bridegroom, whereas the other ones were frantic over it. Uh, And in the end, the wise ones were entered in to the joy of the wedding celebration, whereas the foolish ones were shut out. So again, this parable is teaching us that the church uh, consists both of true and false professors of faith. And so we can think back to the parable in Matthew 13 of the wheat and the tares. This is something that we've seen before in the teaching of Christ. So what is it then that true believers and false professors have in common uh, if false professors indeed are part of the visible church on earth? Well, They both profess to be Christians. They both claim the name of Christ. They uh, both share in baptism. They both go to church services, attend to singing and prayer, the hearing of sermons, the reading of the scriptures, fellowship in the church. They are both seeking heaven, seeking joy in the afterlife. But these things are not evidence of citizenship in the kingdom. They're not evidence of salvation, just as we saw in the previous parable. And so uh, the foolish ones have put on a show of religion, but they didn't persevere to the end. Uh, And so we might think back to Matthew chapter 13, to this parable of the sower as Jesus explains it to his disciples. And he says, but he who received the seed on stony places, this is in verse 20, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. 
For when tribulations or persecutions arise because of the word, immediately he stumbles. And so this is kind of what we have pictured for us here. We have some uh, who made a profession of faith. Uh, They put on a show of being prepared and longing for the coming of the bridegroom, but their lamps go out. They don't persevere in the faith. Uh, And they come to the ones who do, and they ask them to share with them their oil. But the problem is is that you can't share with another person the inward grace of the Holy Spirit that has prepared you for eternity. Everyone must uh, seek that for themselves. Uh, R.C. Sproul says that if there is an analogy for the oil in this parable, it would have to be the Holy Spirit. Uh, which is pictured for us quite often related to oil uh, throughout the scriptures. And so uh, these five wise virgins actually have the Holy Spirit, whereas the false virgins did not. They only had a show of religion. And so uh, they were in good standing with the bride, but they weren't prepared when the bridegroom came. And so what we can learn from this parable is, first of all, that when Christ does come, when the kingdom has come now, in this inward, small way that works within the hearts of those who believe and and begins to grow in them and grow in the world. But we are expecting the the eschatological kingdom, the, the kingdom to come with glory and majesty. And when it does, the coming of the kingdom will be different for believers than it will be for false professors. Believers will enter into the presence of the Lord at that moment. Uh, the presence of the king. They will enjoy fellowship with him. They will enjoy the, the joy and the celebration of the union of Christ with his church at the wedding feast. They will enjoy eternal security. The door is shut. And if we think back to uh, Genesis chapter 7, when the flood is coming on the earth, Noah goes into the ark and the door is shut. It is shut not only to keep out those that God did not intend to save, but also to keep safe Noah and his family. And so uh, we can picture here for us when that door is shut, those who have come into the wedding feast enjoy eternal security. However, for false professors, uh, they are not going to be present with the Lord. They will be cut off from uh, the, the glorious presence of the Lord. They'll be separated from fellowship with the church, which they have enjoyed here on earth. They have a relationship with the bride, but they'll be cut off even from that. Uh, They will not experience the joy of the wedding feast. In fact, as we saw in the previous parable, there will be weeping, gnashing of teeth. They'll suffer remorse uh, for not being able to enter in. Uh, They won't even be recognized by Christ. In verse 12, but he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. And we see that in other passages of the scripture too, that Christ won't even acknowledge those false professors uh, as being his. And they will be eternally separated from him uh, when the door is shut. And so he concludes in verse 13 telling us, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. And so as we think about, well, what does this uh, parable mean for us? How are we to apply this? Well, One, seek the inward grace of the Holy Spirit now while he is to be found. 
right? Be prepared. Don't find yourself unprepared as the foolish virgins did. Don't be content merely with an outward show of religion, but actually seek uh, a renewed heart. Learn to wait expectantly on the Lord. Uh, We don't know the hour of his coming, uh, and it may be uh, sooner or later than we might hope or expect it to be. But be assured that he is coming. He will come, and when he comes, uh, there will be a judgment. So just as the kingdom has come in unexpected ways, it will come in its full and final majesty, but it will come at an unexpected time, and so we are to be ready and be prepared. Well, the next uh, parable that we'll look at here uh, comes right after this, uh, the parable of the talents here in chapter 25, uh, beginning in verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew that you you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look. There you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away." And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So you can see that once again this parable ends in a very similar way uh, to the previous ones. uh, With uh, one servant being cast out. The weeping and gnashing of teeth uh, in the end there. But here we have uh, this parable is different. We're no longer dealing with a wedding. Instead, we're dealing with servants uh, of a master who are to steward some of his goods. Now, uh, it's interesting that we're dealing with the life of Joseph on Sunday morning, uh, and here he is serving in another's household as a steward, uh, and here Jesus tells this parable, and I wonder if maybe Joseph's story might not even have come to mind as people were hearing this. And if you'll remember last week as we looked at the unforgiving servant, and we saw the uh, amount that he had been forgiven by his master, and we said that it amounted to just this unimaginable uh, monetary amount that he could never hope to repay, something like a trillion dollars. Well, here, uh, as these talents are entrusted to these servants, uh, it's not a talent like to sing and dance. It's a talent uh, as a measure of weight uh, 
of precious metals. And so it could be gold, it could be silver, it could be bronze. Uh, if it is gold or silver, um, R.C. Sproul suggested that one talent would be more or less equal to about 20 years' pay for a day laborer. So again, we're talking about large sums. Uh, if a man was given five talents, that would be like 100 years' wages for an average day laborer. Now, if we understand these talents to be gifts given by Christ, then obviously we're being told here that Christ's gifts are valuable. And so we think back to the parables in chapter 13 that Jesus told about the value of the kingdom. And so uh, that is being reinforced for us here again. Notice also that the talents are not distributed equally. Uh, They're not given out equally to the three servants. Uh, They're not given according to their need, right? So uh, this is not uh, popular Marxism from each according to his ability to each according to his need. That's not what happens here. These talents are given out uh, to each according to his ability. Uh, So this is very politically incorrect in our modern day and age. It's given according to the wisdom of the master in assessing uh, the abilities of his servants to steward uh, his goods well. The previous parable taught us uh, to be vigilant for Christ's return. This one teaches us that we are to be diligent while we await his return, uh, that we are to be fruitful in our work and our service for him. Uh, This is to be a disciplined stewardship. If we have much or little, either way, Christ mandates profitable use of the blessings that he has given us in this life. So as we await his return, uh, we are to be working uh, to accomplish uh, his goals in the world. In Ephesians, I can get turned over here. In Ephesians chapter 4, in a passage that you are familiar with, I'm sure. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. So as he ascended on high, he went away into a far country, as it's told in the parable, and he gave gifts to his church. He gave gifts to men. So obviously, uh, we could think of spiritual gifts that are given to every believer, but we could think beyond that as well uh, as to... um, not just spiritual gifts, but other things in which the Lord has entrusted us with. Money, time, children, natural abilities, uh, all these sorts of things are gifts from God. Every good gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights. And so all of these things are gifts from God, and he expects us to use them profitably. Uh, The servants here, again, are pictured as those who are in the visible kingdom, in the church here on earth. And so he has given us these gifts and these resources, and he expects us to use them. And when he returns, uh, we are to have something to show for our diligence uh, here in this life. So I'm going to turn over and read you a verse from the book of James. James chapter 3. Verse 13 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. 
So James is telling us here that uh, we are to do works. And of course, James famously says, you have faith, I'll show you my faith by my works. Uh, So uh, we are to be diligent in our work for Christ. In, In Revelation chapter 14, verse 13, it says, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. So what we do here on earth uh, echoes into eternity. It follows us into eternity. Have we been good stewards of the gifts that God has given us, whether those are our spiritual gifts, our natural abilities, our physical resources, our children? Have we used them wisely for his kingdom? The foolish virgins thought that heaven could be entered uh, under their own power, without the Holy Spirit. Here, the lazy steward thinks that faith can, can exist without works, right? That he can profess faith but not actually act on it, not actually do anything with it. Uh, but Jesus is telling us, no, faith must be accompanied by works. It will be accompanied by works. Notice that the return that is expected is not the same from each of the servants, Uh, The one who has five talents returns five additional. The one who has two returns two additional. Jesus didn't expect, uh, the master didn't expect the one who had two talents to return five additional ones. Uh, He gave them, uh, entrusted them these talents according to their ability, uh, and he expected them to do with it according to their ability, not according to anyone else's ability. Christ doesn't expect uh, all of us to have the same sort of evangelistic ministry that Billy Graham had. He gave him certain gifts. He didn't give them to us. He doesn't expect us to have the preaching ministry that Charles Spurgeon has. Those were Spurgeon's gifts. He was accountable for that. We are accountable for what has been given to us. So we can see from these parables a number of things that uh, we have learned in the last couple of weeks. That the kingdom is come now on earth in the visible church uh, internally in the lives of believers, but that that visible church consists of a mixed multitude. There are those within the church who are not true believers, and that won't be sorted out finally uh, until Christ does return. But we've seen that our standing and our entrance into the kingdom is not related to wealth, social status, uh, ethnicity. It is based solely on the grace of God. Faithless religion was condemned uh, relation to Christ is by, by faith is the sole measure of gaining citizenship in the kingdom. And so uh, the faithless uh, religious leaders were condemned for not having faith. We've seen that an external profession of faith is not uh, certainty of salvation, but only the internal work of the Holy Spirit assures us that we will have entrance into the coming kingdom. And here in this final parable, we've seen that fruitfulness in measure to the gifts he has given us testifies to the genuineness of our faith. And so next week we're going to begin to look at uh, some of Christ's teaching in the Beatitudes uh, on what sorts of people will inherit the kingdom uh, and begin to uh, look at some of the aspects of the kingdom now in relation to what it will be uh, when he returns. Let's close in a word of prayer.